0: is Emily Franson. Welcome to My Nerd Brain, a dialogue on musicians' health and wellness. We're on episode 17 this week, and I'm really happy to welcome Dr. Laura Bird, who is a neuroscientist and psychologist and studies the uh, potential therapeutic and health benefits of music training and or music listening. Laura, thank you so much for being here today. I would like to welcome you to My Nerd Brain. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. Happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you um this is super cool i've been like bragging to everybody because you're in melbourne australia i'm in new orleans so it's 8 p.m
1: my time what time is it there uh 11 in the morning so nice and respectable time for a podcast
0: (laughs) oh man i just love that it's tomorrow there it's so exciting for me (laughs) (laughs) and you're actually the first person who i will be interviewing who i met on twitter which makes me sound like a you know, total hipster my <laughs> podcast with people I met on Twitter,
1: but it's actually really exciting. <laughs> oh, that's the way that it's all heading at the moment, isn't it? I mean, in, yeah, in research in my field, Twitter's kind of everything at the moment. I had a Twitter account, um, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and it was more for pushing out all my environmental greeny kind of stuff. And then it was just too much hassle, took too much time, like, oh, forget about it, got too many apps to worry about. Um, and then I think it was about last year, sometime I got back onto it because you just, you can't have, um, you know, not, you can't not have Twitter uh, and be a yeah. researcher at the moment. It's just so, so much um, you can get from it.
0: Huh, that's really interesting. I mean, I don't use Twitter for like anything that's important. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess that actually makes sense. Like you can connect with people that you may not, you know, meet otherwise
1: yeah so. great for networking. People post jobs on their research jobs and stuff yeah. and promoting your research, so it's that's cool. very
0: cool. I did not know that yeah twitter anyway so <laughs> um so we were talking before we started recording, and uh you're doing your postdoc right now what what are you kind of into right now in your research, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so um, at the moment I, so the main job that I, research job that I do, um, is at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Um, it's, I think the the bragging thing is that it's the largest neuroscience um, like research institute in the Southern Hemisphere, something like that, definitely in Australia, yeah. I think. Um, and so we do a lot of research there on all sorts of Um, brain-related conditions, epilepsy, stroke, um, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, a whole range of things. Um, And I've been working there for about seven years uh, with one of the stroke research teams. We're mainly interested in looking at brain volume and cognition change over time after someone has a stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, but my my background uh, yeah, in psychology um, and my PhD, which I finished last year, was more in the neuropsychology realm. And um, that was looking at musicians and non-musicians with epilepsy and looking at whether having music training has some sort of protective benefit for the brain in people who have a, a brain disorder like epilepsy. So I looked at their um, cognition, like language, memory, attention, things like that and looked at their music perception skills, so um, uh, discriminating pitch, discriminating rhythm, uh, memory for melodies, um, and things like that, um, and we're looking at the, the differences in, in those skills. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm – that's where – Largely, my interests are, and I really want to do more in the the music and health and music and sort of neurology space. I suppose looking at the benefits of of music training or listening, as you said, um, for different uh, brain conditions. Hmm. That is
0: very cool. So, did you find anything specific in your research about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, luckily, we found kind of what we expected <laughs> in in my main study, which is always a good thing in in research. <laughs> Um, so the musicians with epilepsy, so we had about um, about 30-ish in, in each of the, the groups the musicians versus the non-musicians with epilepsy. Um, and uh, the musicians with epilepsy did perform better on uh, most of the tasks. And uh, specifically, the non-musicians with epilepsy um, performed worse on some of the verbal cognitive tasks, so things like remembering a list of words and having to repeat that back. Um, or I give you a letter of the alphabet and you have to generate as many words as you can think of beginning with that letter. Um, so things like that that involve our our verbal skills. Um, they did worse hmm. on those tasks, which we would expect because the uh, the group, the epilepsy group, was mainly people who had temporal lobe epilepsy and we know that the temporal lobes um, are highly involved in those sort of verbal and language skills, so that wasn't surprising in the non non musician group. Um, but the musicians with epilepsy didn't show those same deficits in those uh, verbal skills. So our conclusion from that was that their music training had afforded some sort of um, protective benefit uh, for their cognitive skills in that sense. Um, and there's there's a lot of there's a you know a lot of contention in the research um, area of this about uh, whether whether playing music makes you smarter and there's right. evidence on both sides and there's it's a really complex picture because there's so many other factors that that go into it it's personality um it there's genetic influence as well. so unless you have a longitudinal study where you're following um kids, for example, and there are studies like this where you're following kids over maybe a couple of years and some of the kids are in a group that are getting music lessons and some of the kids are in a group that are getting um sports like classes sports lessons or drama or arts um or maybe nothing so they there's a range of different sort of control groups that you can Mm -hmm. use um and generally they do find that there is at least partly an effect of the music training per se there might still be a genetic part um, or a personality part uh, or something to do with socioeconomic status so that the parents right. who have more money can afford to put their kids in music classes um, or the parents who are more creative themselves maybe, um, maybe and the kids who might be more open to new experiences that sort of drives them to take up new activities whether it's music or Or something else so there's lots of factors in there but at least part of it is that the music training does have an effect for some cognitive functions and it's probably the functions that are most closely related to the skills that you need to play a musical instrument so auditory and motor kind of skills
0: yeah it makes sense Mm. so learning an instrument doesn't make you dumber so
1: no it doesn't definitely can't help okay (laughs) all
0: right that's that's good to know (laughs) I'm always fascinated by this stuff, because I'm like, I've never been good at scientific types of things like I, that wasn't a thing for me in high school. But I'm always really interested in it. And just the ways that all these things work together, like you're talking about. Um, how did you get into that music side of research?
1: Mm. Well, I can. I owe a lot of that to my uh, supervisor, my PhD supervisor, um, Sarah Wilson. So she's currently the head of the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences, the psychology department at Melbourne University, where I did my PhD. Um, and so I'm actually from Perth uh, in Western Australia, originally. Right. Uh, so I've been in Melbourne for about 10 and a half years now, I think, something like, something like that. Um, and, uh, I wanted to get out of Perth and, uh, do my, my PhD somewhere else just for, you know, more experience. Loved Melbourne, you know, Melbourne was all about the shopping and Mm -hmm. nightlife and, and everything. It's a great city. So, um, was hoping to come here. And so really I was just looking at the profiles of all the, um, the researchers in the psychology department here, um, to see what their interests were. And yeah, I came across her and um, it was the music uh, that stuck out for me. So she's um, one of the sort of pioneers in the, the music and epilepsy um, kind of research world. Uh, she's a, a neuropsychologist uh, by background. Um, and so she's renowned for, for uh, her work in, in epilepsy um, and in music. And the combination of them, um, and yeah, that really stood out to me. Contacted her, and she had a, a project that was, you know, kind of um, ready to go, or an idea that was sort of ready to to take off with. Um, and so it just turned out that I I loved it. Um, hmm. So I've always I, I played um, clarinet in high school okay. for about six years. Um, I've still got it uh, in the the cupboard. I did actually bring it <laughs> out the other day. Um, because my husband is a music producer, a musician, and um, we were um, doing something musical, and I just got inspired to to bring it out and see if I could still remember all the, you know, the fingerings and um, remember how to, to play it. So that was fun. <laughs> How'd it go? uh yeah it was all right yeah I can still put my embouchure and um yeah I could still yeah. remember most of the notes not the the higher octaves but the the lower ones definitely so that was it's cool it's still up there yeah <laughs> it's funny how that stuff comes back and you're like what part of my brain is that like I'm yeah, you know, right? right now yeah <laughs> <laughs> I a lot of it's motor memory probably yeah it's- right Um, Yeah, so it was cool. Yeah, so I've always been into music and so it was just really cool that I found her and she had that music side of it. I didn't know much about epilepsy um, at that time, but turns out, you know, that's a really fascinating area as well. So that's kind of how I uh, got into it. Um, I count myself as one of those lucky uh, few who actually still like their PhD topic after they (laughs) finished it. You hear so many people like, I never want to read, hear, or talk about this ever again. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Well, you see, that kind of brings up a question that I've always been curious about. Uh, This is a little bit off the beaten track of what we've been talking about. But, you know, going through the cycle of the PhD and the postdoc and all of that is like a tremendous commitment of, you know, time and energy. What drives you to want to do that?
1: That's a very good question. And given the dire funding situation in <laughs> Australia, um, it's a question I've been, <laughs> it's really been going over in my mind <laughs> a lot lately. Um, look, I don't know. I think the large part of it is the discovery. You know, it's sort of, it's a bit like detective work, it's um, collecting all the data and then you know, doing a whole bunch of analyses and seeing what comes out and following like a bit of intuition and following those threads of all that it looks like there's a some sort of passion or something going on there and then following it down. And then uh, at the end of that, you hope that you will have something that will be um, will come out as significant, significant result, but it will also have some sort of potential application or, or impact. And when you're doing sort of human research like this, um, the impact might be that it would feed into some sort of new intervention or you know something that might actually help real life people which is is cool um and given that I do have a background in psychology and um sort of interested in, in people, I suppose it's the wanting to help improve people's lives aspect that also kind of drives me towards that um because yeah. Yeah, otherwise, if you didn't have that, then yeah, it's a really really tough um career <laughs> pathway to go down.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, though, because, I mean, that aspect of research has always appealed to me of like the discovery thing. And let me see what I can find. Um, but I guess in my world, I think about the DMA mostly, which is like, let's go play eight recitals, which to me sounds like awful. I would <laughs> I would not want to do that at all. Um, but yeah, I hadn't thought about it in terms of just your specialty being completely different. So like, the academic path. I guess it's completely different. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I can see how that would be really interesting.
1: Yeah. Alongside that, you've got to sort of like, or at least tolerate the, the paper writing and the grant right. writing and the paperwork, putting in ethics applications to do new studies and, and things like that. And that's, that's the really, uh, a lot of that is really time consuming. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of rejection putting in grant after grant and having it rejected Um putting in papers and getting them rejected from journals or having really brutal feedback on on things that you've spent months working on yeah. and putting <laughs> everything into so it's like you've got to have a really tough skin as well yeah um and there's this culture that um or a, mis- and a misconception that if you do a phd that going into academia is the norm and that if you go outside of academia after your phd you're somehow You know, you didn't quite make it. You sort of failed to follow the academic path or um, you deviated somehow, Um, where in reality, uh, a lot of people cite the fact that um, staying in academia is actually the exception rather than the rule. So a smaller percentage percentage of people stay in academia compared to leave academia to go work in industry or policy or or whatever. Mm -hmm. So many things you can do with a PhD, with the skills, the general skills that it teaches you. Um, but yeah, there's a really quite a toxic sort of um, culture in, in academia um, in, in some respects. Of that, yeah. that pressure of needing to succeed, needing to perform, needing right. to stay in academia, lest you look like a failure as a yeah. Know, researcher.
0: Yeah. I mean, we have the same thing here. Cause you know, I have a master's in music and I was, the exception to the rule and that I, you know, got some college work with just a master's, but I mean, if you don't have the PhD, it's like, well, what are you waiting for? It's like, I mean, to not spend hundreds of thousands of dollars that I'm never going to make back. Cause I'm in the music industry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I get that. And I definitely get what you mean about like that view that you somehow failed. It's like, no, I just didn't want to
1: do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: really all
1: was. Uh. Yep. Apparently only 3% of people who get a PhD go on to be professors like with tenure. Like, well, oh. that's not many people. <laughs> so, so, why depressing. would you aspire, I mean, not why would you aspire to be one of those 3%, but um, you know, why would you yeah, continue to put yourself through hell if you know that there's a possibility, a high possibility that you're not yeah. going to be one of those those 3% and there's, there's so many ways that you can use a, a research degree.
0: So do you have an end game where that's concerned? Like do you know what you want to go into ultimately?
1: Um, so I've seen professors I've seen what their life is like and I don't know necessarily if if that end point is to is me. I love doing research and I do. I'm very committed to kind of going down this pathway, um, being a post postdoc, being an early career researcher and um Putting in grant applications and seeing if I can get some funding to to continue my own stuff that I'm interested in. Um, I, I'm like I've got the the psychology background, the sort of clinical side of things as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, not as a as a backup, but as a you know complementary kind of yeah. I suppose Um, but yeah and I'm really interested in the the music and epilepsy and music and other health conditions um, side of things so I'm I'm driven at the moment to to see where that takes me and um, hopefully it'll lead to some interesting collaborations um, some new projects and um, yeah
0: cool so this may be a dumb question but is there a reason I know you said you went to study with somebody who's specifically studying epilepsy and music is there a reason why she picked epilepsy
1: um well she's uh, as i said she's got a, a background in neuropsychology um and we at the uh one of the hospitals, the main hospitals here, which the Florey Institute and the University of Melbourne are both kind of linked to quite heavily. Um, we've got um quite a, a good uh comprehensive epilepsy program. So there's quite a lot of um specialists like epilepsy neurologists um based in Melbourne here uh mm-hmm. who specialise in in that um or the the full like uh video EEG monitoring and really complex cases, they they come to to that team um so yeah I think, I think through being uh in neuropsychology um she was around about th- at that time when that was all um sort of really going and so that's yeah just yeah what she's gotten into
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense cool let me pause for a second and read my ad my coffee ad all right this episode is brought to you by new orleans coffee company The New Orleans Coffee Company has been making cool brew coffee right here in Mid-City for over 30 years. Cool Brew is the original cold brew coffee concentrate, and it only takes one ounce of cool brew. It's got a cool little squeezy bottle uh, to make a cup of delicious iced coffee or hot coffee just by adding water or add ice cream and sugar in a blender for a delicious frappe. You can also make it hot, by the way. No need to wait in line. This is a coffee shop in every bottle. It comes in eight different flavors. And it's available at most supermarkets, or you can order online and have it delivered to your door at coolbrew.com. And if you uh, go online, you can use the uh, discount code NERDBRAIN25, so N-E-R-D-BRAIN, B-R-A-I-N, 25, and that'll give you 25% off your first order of Cool Brew Coffee. All right. Carrying on. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I guess I was going to ask, like, if you have any specific kind of uh, outcomes that you're looking for in your research right now.
1: Yeah, so um, from my PhD, the one of the things I wanted to look at next was um, the sort of brain differences between musicians and non-musicians with epilepsy. Um, So what's driving that? protective benefit for the brain in the musician group. Um, That would involve maybe getting them in an MRI scanner um, and seeing whether there are structural differences in either grey matter structures or the white matter um, fibres that connect uh, the regions or functional differences. Um, So when their brains are at rest, um, are they sort of behaving functionally in a different way, different areas connecting with different strengths and things like that. MRI studies take money. (laughs) I currently (laughs) don't have uh, funding to continue that side of things at the moment. So that's sort of put on pause just for the moment. Um, But the other area that we've been really interested in um, is going more down the music and emotions uh, pathway. And so I've been reading a lot about this and it's a, a really fascinating area of how people use music for emotion regulation. Um, Like adolescents, for example, modern day adolescents do this a lot. And there's lots of theories out there um, about the mechanisms that might be driving that. So whether it's um, uh, linked to specific memories or it's the the features of the music itself, like a high tempo, um, major mode, things like that. Um, So sort of happy music um, tends to get us more energised and maybe lift our mood a bit. Whereas sad music, so low tempo, um, you know, slow, flowy, in a minor mode um, is possibly going to to make us feel sadder. Um, although there's uh, research showing that people, or adolescents, for example, when they're in a sad mood, sometimes like to listen to sad music, which mm-hmm. seems counterintuitive, but there's um, probably a sort of cathartic effect there, like, feeling like the music is is really getting um, at what you're feeling right now feeling like the the artist really understands like through their lyrics and through the music what you're going through um, so yeah this is a really interesting area of, of how people use music and why it has so much power um, and then I guess the question is well how can we really harness that like in a in a clinical sense um, and how can we use music obviously as music therapy that's that's a, a profession right. um, but that requires one-on-one usually sessions with a music therapist and it's it's quite Mm -hmm. specific and evidence-based. And And so it would be uh, interesting if there was um, a more sort of, you know, casual at-home kind of way people could engage with music, still with like an evidence basis. So uh, using all this research showing what music has been shown to be effective for lifting mood or for um, lowering mood or, or doing whatever it needs to do in different situations. Um, that would be a really great way for people who don't have access to a music therapist or something like that right. to still get those those benefits. Um, because there are sort of unhealthy ways that people use music as well, healthy and right. and unhealthy ways. And so you want to uh, avoid or reduce um, the amount that people are using music in an unhealthy way. And that might be related to their other existing, like non music related coping strategies as well, and, and what they've learned. And that might be they might have, um, you know, already unhealthy coping mechanisms. And then right. they kind of use those same mechanisms when they listen to music as well.
0: So, what would be considered an unhealthy way to use music?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, an unhealthy or a sort of more maladaptive um, non music coping strategy. It might be something like suppression, um, so you know, keeping it all bottled up inside, um, or, or rumination, so continually going over and over and over a worry or a thought or something. Right. Um, there's some research showing that th- those sorts of um, strategies, I suppose, are similarly unhealthy uh, in music listening, but then there's also research that shows that music. Uh, related coping or emotional regulation strategies are not necessarily correlated with their equivalent non-music strategies Um, and I think there's still a lot of work to be done there it's still not quite clear exactly um, why that is Um, but more using music uh, in terms of the the other other side of it the healthy uses of music um, include things like using music to um positively frame reframe a situation Hmm. think about situation in a different way um or maybe to um sort of like for for positive venting I suppose and releasing of of energy okay that.
0: that makes sense that's really fascinating because I used to teach you know when I was still quote in academia um I used to teach a lot of really big music appreciation classes and they're um you know, for non-majors, for non-music majors. So one of the the first things I would do, uh, because I don't get to know them all personally, because uh, it's like classes of 60, I'd, I'd have them write just a little, you know, short blurb about themselves and like, what kind of music do you listen to? And I was always surprised at how many responses I get that people listen to classical music to relax and to study. And like, I'm a classical musician. So for me, like that is not relaxing at all. Like I listen to it in a very analytical way. And I listen to other genres of music to, you know, relax and chill with. Um, so yeah, it's always interesting to me how different people respond to different types of music like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's interesting because my husband has said a similar thing um in the past. So I think I tend to be more on the side of listening to music. Um in, a, in an emotional way so I you know listen really listen to the lyrics and mm-hmm. um you know feel the vibe of the song and and whatnot but for him because he has been a musician or he's a musician in a particular genre he's mainly been in the sort of alternative heavy rock post-hardcore kind okay. of um, genre um and so he can't listen to that sort of music yeah so you know sometimes um without sort of thinking about yeah like really analytically um listening to the guitar lines and thinking oh I could yeah I could write a bass line like that and (laughs) it's not a relaxing thing to him and so um I think yeah we do definitely use music in a different way um in that sense
0: yeah and my both my parents are professional musicians my dad's a drummer my mom's also a classical pianist and my dad listens to a lot of classical music like he always did when we were growing up he still does and and every once in a while when I'll go over there, i feel be like, oh, have you heard so-and-so play this piece on piano? I'm like, no, because I don't want to listen to that because I'm going to do nothing but compare myself to that person <laughs> and, <laughs> and see if I can play that piece. It's <laughs> you know? so just not the same thing for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, not that I don't enjoy it. I just, like you said, I listen to it in a very different way than I would like jazz or rock or, you know, I just... Mm.
1: I don't hear it that way. (laughs) Yeah. If it's your profession to pick apart those pieces, um, then that's all you're going to be able to do. You won't be able to just listen to it on a really surface level because that's that's what you're wired to do. If you've been doing that for a long time.
0: Yeah. They teach you everything against listening to it on a surface level. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is both good and bad. Um. So, talking about all of you know the the future studies and your thoughts about um working with music and emotions, which I think is really cool, and I, like you said, I don't think there's enough out there about that um what do you feel like musicians might be able to gain from you know your research and your findings?
1: yeah, so um I mean, I'm mainly as I said, I'm sort of interested at the moment in the um sort of brain-disordered kind of um, Mm -hmm. population. So there is quite a bit of of research out there about, um, you know, musicians, like healthy musicians um, and what music can do for them. Um, One of the areas I think which is um, really interesting and and relates kind of to my psychology background is the area of music uh, performance anxiety um, so I've got a colleague who does a lot in, in that kind of space um, and so that sort of thing is I think really critical for mm-hmm. musicians understanding your own reactions when you're performing and the, the cues to you that you're using to um, help manage anxiety during a performance and things like that, um, which is a very psychological um, mechanisms that apply to like public speaking. You know, for example, as a Mm -hmm. a non-music example, it's a very similar thing. Um, So, but yeah, in terms of of people with um, brain disorders or or brain injuries, um, I'm really hoping that um, eventually uh, the stuff that I'm doing, so looking at whether music training might be beneficial um, and whether music listening in terms of using it for emotion regulation might be beneficial. Um, Ideally, you know, we'd want to come up with some sort of intervention um, that we could test first in a clinical trial um, Mm -hmm. to see if it's effective and then hopefully that would lead to either like a face-to-face intervention that might be implemented in some sort of hospital or outpatient program um, or an app or something. Um, that might be, be beneficial uh, for people with brain disorders that they could use uh, probably not as a replacement for um, like other psychological help for example right. but, but certainly as an adjunct um, because there are barriers to to mental health treatment um, right. Uh, in Australia, and I'm sure they're similar in, in the US as well, um, you've got um, distance barriers, um, financial barriers. Right. Um, in Australia, you can only get um, 10 uh, sessions, rebate sessions that you can claim per year. Um, so you get, uh, we've got Medicare um here mm-hmm. and we do have um mental health care plans which cover okay. um rebates um for part of the the session and then you just pay the the gap the difference um you can only get 10 of those per year so for someone who's got long-standing ongoing complex psychological problems 10 sessions a year is not going to cut it <laughs> that's nope. not not going to, to to fully treat that condition um so yeah, so there's those barriers as well. There's um, the typical kind of stigma barriers uh, right. around mental health and, um, and mental illness. Um, yeah, so there's there's barriers to to face to face mental health treatment so if there was some sort of app or other um, ways that people could help um, their their mental health and emotion regulation or programs that people could use to maybe help um, rehabilitate particular cognitive um, impairments um, then I think they could be really useful for people with a lot of different conditions
0: that is so cool yeah I sorry um I went through a period of time where I was seeing a therapist twice a week, amused for months. And I mean, I literally had to get another job to afford my therapy, Uh which then is like this weird, like, you know, it's like, well, which came first, the chicken or the, you know, it's like, this job is definitely making things worse, but how am I going to afford the therapy? Because the job sucks. So- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I and I have no medical coverage for um my therapy, and that's not the case for everybody. Uh, mm. but it's it's similar, like you're saying, like certain doctors will take insurance, certain mm. insurance policies cover specific amount of. It's a mess. Yeah. But, um,
1: oh, so much more complex in the U.S. <laughs> than it is here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, as most things, healthcare are, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's, it's really cool that you're talking about that because, um, I actually was referred recently to a program, I think they call it a functional restoration program at one of the, um, major hospitals down here. Um, cause I have chronic pain and this program is supposed to be like an intensive program where they kind of retrain your brain, you know, and it's. Accommodation of cognitive behavioral therapy and I think like some group therapy and some talk about physical therapy and all that stuff. Um, and I haven't had my preliminary visit yet. I'm about to, but uh things like that that are really specific to, you know, whatever condition you're suffering with are so important because, you know, even though I have a psychiatrist and I have a therapist, like they don't necessarily understand firsthand what it's like to live with chronic pain. Um, and whereas they try and they try to treat it, it's hard to discuss that with somebody who hasn't experienced it, you know? Um, and so I, I think it's really cool that people are out there developing more specific types of treatment, um, for different conditions. And, and like you're talking about kind of that interact, um, intervention and the apps and things like that, that's, very useful
1: (laughs) yeah and like for music specifically when you think about how easily accessible music is now every you know almost everyone can get music somehow on their smartphone or computer or or something or you know just by by streaming so how accessible it is and and how powerful it is like we know that it changes the brain playing an instrument changes the brain Um, and um, music like there's a lot of uh, research going on at the moment in the current uh, COVID-19 situation about like group singing and, you know, the balcony singing that was happening in like Italy and and places like that and how it's got that social cohesion um, kind of effect. So uh, and then there's the research on uh, like music therapy, I suppose, or infant kind of therapy um, for like prematurely born uh, infants um, and using music and, you know, lullabies and there's really specific features like the the tempo and the um, like singing it in a, like a 3-4 um, huh. kind of time signature and things in that more sort of lullaby kind of style wow. um, and there's a lot of bonding that goes on um, using music in that way. Um, And just even going back to basics, like when we speak to infants, um, it's really melodic and it's all the the, the pitches are exaggerated Mm -hmm. and and all that. So it's just, you know, music is is all around us basically from when we're born to when we die. And then there's all the research on um, like Alzheimer's dementia and how music Mm -hmm. can help facilitate their memory um, and sort of bring them back to life a little bit. Um, when you play a a favorite song that they used to listen to in their 20s or 30s and you just see that they just kind of their eyes sparkle and and they start to um, be a bit more active so it's just so powerful across the lifespan so yeah I think we need to be um, you know drawing on that more um, and using it to its full advantage its full potential.
0: Yeah I've read a couple of those articles about uh, people with like you said dementia or Alzheimer's and um the way certain things like stay with you and, and lock in, you know, so to speak. Um yeah. yeah, all of this is it's very interesting. Um I don't know if you guys have the calm app there. It's like a kind of a meditation app. But um Haven't it's any... like it's multi okay, it's multifunctional and uh, you know, some of it's like guided meditation. Um some of it's you know like meditative music type stuff but um they also sound kind of silly uh but they also have these things called sleep stories and it's basically just like somebody telling you like a long-winded story in a very soothing voice (laughs) and for whatever reason it, it like I've always had trouble sleeping when I was trying to you know wean myself off sleep meds uh, that was one of the things that would actually help me go to sleep. And it's like, man, what part of my childhood has like survived all of that so that that's still soothing somehow? Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, I actually just talked to my last episode was with um, a really popular um DJ artist down here, and she does like funk DJing and live DJing and everything. Um, and I was asking her if she ever played an instrument. And she said, oh yeah, I mean, I played a ton of them and none of it stuck, but the music part stuck. You know, I really loved the music, but playing it just like, wasn't it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's interesting too, you know, how just the process of like being exposed to it, I guess can make you more adaptive to it. I don't know. (laughs) but um, Yeah, yeah. I guess everybody has their...
1: Yeah, different effects in people. Right yeah and that, that's that's the really difficult thing when you're talking about music in a research context. There's so many individual um right. factors that that go into this, so there, there's a lot of um yeah difficulty and complexity in working out why a particular piece of music works for you know some particular type of music uh, or emotion regulation for example um and does it work for everybody or is it just in this particular group of people that you've recruited, or just yeah. a couple of people in that group, or yeah
0: yeah, I could see how that would be very difficult to pin down it's it, you've almost got too much to choose from um so
1: props to you <laughs> <laughs> I'm only just starting to get into this area, so i'm'm I'm sort of um starting to realize how complex it is, and but you know it's made up for by by how interesting um this area is and and really yeah. wanting to find out more about um, how we can harness that power of music to change our mood and emotions and, and things. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it's fascinating, and I thank you for doing the work. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, Well, is this a good stopping point? I
1: think so, yeah, unless there's yeah. anything else particular that you wanted to ask.
0: We've changed the world you know, in the last 40 <laughs> minutes. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to push it because it's like I get dumber as it goes for sure. So, <laughs> past the 45 minute mark, I like it's going to go downhill from there. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Laura Bird, I would, sorry, Bird. <laughs> Dr. Laura Bird, I would like to thank you for being my guest on episode 17 of Welcome to My Nerd Brain. You can find me online at welcometomynerdbrain.com or on Instagram at welcometomynerdbrain. You can also get in touch with me via email at ecfrancen at mac.com. I can't talk today. E-C-F-R-A-N-S-E-N at mac.com. We have Brains 2020 magnets for sale in the Nerd Brain shop, and those benefit the Minnesota Freedom Fund. So head over there and uh, pick up a few magnets. Also be sure to check out the nerd brainiacs Facebook group for exclusive content. Can I shout out your Twitter? Is that okay? Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay.
0: So you can find Dr. Laura bird on Twitter at Dr. Laura J bird. So J is the middle initial um, and follow her latest research there. Do you have any other like social media or websites or whatever? Uh, no. That's okay. Okay. Cool. So as always, Thanks for listening. Stay well, stay healthy, and wash your damn hands.